Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the most dramatic stories of the week was the story of the U.S. astronaut and the Russian cosmonaut that had to make a dangerous ballistic re-entry into the Earth's atmosphere after their rocket failed. They were on a mission to go to the International Space Station, and two minutes into the flight, uh, something happened One in the second stage of the boosters. Something failed, and they had to abort mission and return back. The only way we can get to the International Space Station right now is by using these Russian rockets, these Soyuz rockets, to get up there. It's a cramped little thing. They're old. Uh, we're waiting for these new rockets to be able to take us up there from SpaceX and Boeing. Um, and it's kind of a little blow to this troubled Russian space program. It's the only link that gets us up to the International Space Station. So for more on this, we turn to Rod Pyle. He's a space historian. He's a science writer. He's an author. He knows everything you need to know about space and space exploration. You can check out all his stuff at pilebooks.com. And we just started off by asking him for more details on this crazy story. This was a flight, as you said, of one astronaut, one U.S. astronaut, and one cosmonaut go up the space station. And they're in the Soyuz spacecraft, which also rides up on a rocket of the same name that was going up. And they're supposed to swap out for a couple of crew members that are already up at the space station who are going to come back. Now, the space station always has a Soyuz capsule attached up there just in case. So that's their get out of jail free card if they need to come home in an emergency. But the official seal of approval on that for coming home expires in mid-December. So they really needed this one to come up and swap out the crew or not. And as it turned out, it didn't. So apparently what happened is it, it made it through about two minutes of flight and it was staging first stage to second stage and what I can tell and if you look at the video of it there's some kind of odd detritus falling off the rocket it looks almost like silver glitter from a distance I don't think that normally happens around staging but it's been a long time since I've looked but that tells me there might have been something going on with one of the engines but at any rate that's that's strictly conjecture what we do know is that something happened at staging either an engine failed to ignite or what I've read more recently is that the first stage didn't drop free properly so for one reason or another they had to abort now the rockets designed to be able to do that and they all have been since the early space age both on our side and the, and the soviets except for our space shuttle which really didn't have an abort option until much later and when you abort your ground control punches a big red button and the capsule lets go from the top of the rocket and fires a smaller set of rockets up above the capsule which are extremely powerful and just burn for a few seconds if you're an astronaut inside that thing and you hit the abort button, it's like getting slammed with a block of concrete right in the face. They said they were forced to do a ballistic re-entry. What exactly does that mean? Because they said that during that stuff that the crew members can face uh, G-forces 10 times greater than that of uh, what's going on on Earth. It's rarely more than eight, but it's still a lot. And even in a normal re-entry, you're, you're looking at maybe four or five, but each one is significantly more. So 
But ballistic reentry means this is what they did in the very early space age days back in Mercury and the Vostok on the Soviet side. Normally, when a space capsule comes back in, it glides a little bit. It's almost like the space shuttle in a way. The shield is designed in such a way, and, the, and they use guidance rockets to position themselves so that they kind of glide back a little sideways in that heat shield. So it's kind of this shallow, gradual reentry that gives you four to five, sometimes six Gs. A ballistic reentry just means you've got up over the top of the arc that whatever speed you had goes away and then you come back straight down like a bullet and because you're not scrubbing off any of that energy by moving sideways you're generating eight possibly nine g's which is a lot the uh, u.s astronaut nick haig it was his first mission what a ride and what a crazy turn of events for him what a rotten afternoon, huh? And they showed some video of the ascent, and at the point that whatever happened, happened, it started, I guess the rocket started to vibrate significantly. You can see these two guys, and their hands are flapping around like they're trying to learn how to fly. I mean, it's really, <laughs> it's almost comical yeah. looking, but you realize it, it was a tough ride, because normally that doesn't happen. So they're really, they said they were, they were weightless at one point, even before they hit the panic buttons, something cut out now, along the way. Now, these uh, Russian Soyuz spacecrafts, generally, they're pretty reliable is what I said. I know they had a couple problems here and there, but can you comment on that? And then also talk about the new fleet of things that are happening because SpaceX has a capsule getting ready. Boeing has another one also. What do we know about these? So Soyuz has been flying since 1967 and it's flown 145 times. So although that's actually not that many more than the shuttle, it's been very successful. They only had two crew losses back in the 60s. And then after that, it's had a few issues, but generally it's been extremely reliable and it's been around a long time. Russia has launched an investigation to see what happened and they said that they're going to, you know, share all of the details with everybody because we still have a partnership with them. So, we'll see what the true cause of that was, but thank you very much Rod Pyle, space historian, author, catch all of his stuff at pilebooks.com. Thank you for joining us. Sure. One of the most concerning stories that happened this past week was a report about nursing homes. You know, a lot of people have aging parents or just elderly family members, and a lot of times they have no other recourse but to put them into nursing homes. Um, you know, they might need help operating in daily life. So there was a study that came out that says that some nursing home residents are increasingly spending time in rehabilitation treatment during the last days of their lives. They're being subjected to potentially unnecessary therapies that are really reaping significant financial benefits for the facilities themselves. It's a thing called ultra high intensity rehabilitation, and it has to do with you know the amount of time that they're going through the rehab. It just draws all the questions. I mean, the main concern is if these people are in a facility and you know they're elderly and you know they're reaching the end of their lives. Why would you put them through some of these rehabilitation techniques? So we spoke to Riley Griffin. She's a reporter for Bloomberg News, and she told us all about this study. And we started off by asking her, what does ultra high intensity rehabilitation mean? The study found that the proportion of nursing home residents who received ultra high intensity rehab increased by a whopping 65% between 2012 and 2016. But let me backtrack. Ultra high intensity rehabilitation therapy is a classification that is used to designate the amount of treatment given to a skilled nursing home patient. What that designation ultra high means is actually treatment that exceeds 720 minutes a week 
of therapy or more, which can range from speech therapy to physical therapy. But the point to underscore here is that's more than 12 hours a week. So it's highly intensive. And we're seeing this increase across the board. While ultra-high therapy isn't bad in and of itself, what's concerning is that residents were found to be treated with this high concentration of rehab during their very last week of life. And the author of the study suggests that this could have been interfering with patients' ability to get other forms of care like hospice. Right. I think that would be the main concern is if you're treating them, obviously, there are patients there at the nursing home, you know the status of their health, and if they seem to be in the latter days of their life, why would you be putting them through some of this intensive therapy rather than doing some of the other stuff, you know, making them more comfortable, the hospice care, all those other things. What does this ultra high intensive rehabilitation consist of though? What are they doing to the patients? Basically ultra high is just a designation that refers to time. What they're doing is any form of therapy that ranges from speech therapy to physical therapy. So helping patients relearn how to eat or move their legs in a certain way. But it, the ultra high refers to the amount of right. therapy given. It sounds maybe a little cruel to say, but if they are in the final days, why put them through this stuff anyways? The author of the study suggests there are two possibilities. One is that nursing homes simply don't know that their patients are in the very last stages of their life. But the other possibility, which is much more compelling based on this research is that nursing homes, particularly for-profit nursing homes, could be trying to maximize on the high reimbursement rate provided by Medicare, despite knowing that a patient is nearing the end of their life. So Medicare, which is a federal insurance program, doles out some of the loftiest rates for ultra-high treatment. And the University of Rochester actually found that for-profit nursing homes were two times as likely to use high to ultra-high intensity rehab than non-profit nursing homes. Are there currently any plans plans to change this structure a little bit. I noticed in the piece that said that if someone comes into a skilled nursing home facility with high degrees of medical complexity, meaning they need a lot of rehabs, they're more at an advantage to get all this stuff rather than somebody who doesn't really need that much rehab. They could be at an advantage and it's also advantageous for the nursing home itself, which is able to benefit from those lucrative reimbursement rates. Another point I wanted to make is that you were asking, should we be looking forward to that changing? Yeah, are there changes on the horizon to kind of help with some of this stuff? Yes. A year from now, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services will actually be implementing a new patient-driven model that will determine reimbursement rates based on patient's condition rather than the amount of treatment that they need. And what have been some of the reactions from some of these nursing homes that might have been the subject of the study or just in kind of general from, uh, you know, interest groups? Obviously, the concern here is that they're doing this for profit and pushing these people through these treatments in the end of their days just to make a little extra money. What have they been saying about that? Well, the American Healthcare Association, which is an organization that represents thousands of for-profit skilled nursing homes around the country and a few nonprofits too, agreed that the payment system needs to be restructured. But they did push back against the study's methodology, saying that it was too narrow of a population to be generalizable. But the author of this study strongly disagreed with that claim. And then if you have a family member that might be in a nursing home or something, or you might suspect that some of this stuff is going on or they're getting too many treatments, things like that. What can you do to get a little more involved? What I can say is that 
Since this piece was published, I've received email responses with loved ones concerned for their family members' care and also reporting instances where they feel that their family has faced some kind of trauma related to this issue. It's kind of an unknown, you know, a family member is there being treated and you trust the people there. So you don't know what's going on, especially, you know, if you're not checking in every moment that you have. So there's a level of trust there and reports like this come out and it gives you cause for concern. Many experts that I spoke to from within the nursing industry and also within advocacy groups have said that there's a great lack of information surrounding the payment processing and the treatment that these patients are getting. Riley Griffin, reporter for Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right, I'm glad we're finally here. This is my favorite story of the week. We've all heard stories about passengers flying with uh, their cats and their dogs. In some cases, I don't know why this is so popular, but they're miniature horses. It's people flying with their emotional support animals. And, you know, the list is longer than that. Peacocks, hamsters, a duck wearing a diaper. I wish I could have seen that. Defecating pigs, unfortunately. The latest one in this line of emotional support animals is a lady flying with her pet squirrel, or I'm sorry, her emotional support squirrel. Um, I brought in my producer, Miranda, for more details on this, just to find out how crazy the story is. And we also talk about what steps you need to take to actually get cleared to have an emotional support animal. This woman was removed from a Frontier Airlines flight late Tuesday night when she tried to fly with her emotional support squirrel. (laughs) And then she refused to get off the plane after being told no, according to the airline. So a Frontier spokesperson made a statement and said that, yes, the passenger did follow protocol by calling them in advance and saying that she would be flying with an emotional support animal. But she never specified that it would be anything other than the typical dog or cat. Right. They had no idea that they were going to have a rodent on board. That seems like a failure of communication. You would think the person handling the call would have asked, well, what is the animal? They said rodents, including squirrels, are not allowed on frontier flights. So if it seems to be some type of policy... Okay, that could have been figured out. She called in advance. So they said the flight was traveling from Orlando to Cleveland. They told the lady, you got to get off. They actually had to take other passengers off the plane. Everybody had to get off so that they can deplane her. They had to call the police and forcibly remove her from the flight. Right. And that in and of itself is a huge pain. There's a fun fact. I think you can share this, Miranda. Uh, Frontier Airlines features a variety of animals on the tails of its planes. Yeah. So their thing is that they have animals on the tales of their planes, including Foxy the Red Fox, Rudy the Raccoon, Jim Bob the Badger, and even Oscar Sammy the Squirrel. Of course they did. There was a viral video that was going on and the ladies actually, they took her off on a wheelchair and she's flipping people off as she's being escorted out and people are cheering and everything. I think we have a little bit of audio. Shut up! Frontier announced, actually, that they had a new policy on emotional support animals that is set to go in effect on November 1st and allows cats and dogs and restricts trained service animals to cats, dogs, and miniature horses. There it is again. Miniature horses seem to be quite a popular popular thing. The question then comes, how do people get emotional support animals? I feel like you can just, anybody can just say, hey, I need this X animal here to make me feel better. There's actually a protocol that you need to go through 
to have an emotional support animal? Well, there's a couple of things. So emotional support animals are different from service animals. And so emotional support animals are not covered by the Americans with Disabilities Act, meaning that businesses are not required to accommodate them. So things like airlines, restaurants, if you don't have your service dog because you're blind or you have a peanut allergy or whatever it is, they can kick you out of the restaurant and you're not owed anything. In order to obtain an emotional support animal, you have to prove that you are emotionally disturbed. You have to actually go to a mental health professional. Right. And they have to diagnose you with whatever kind of mental illness or emotional disability you may have. And from there, you can qualify to have the emotional animal to travel with you or go wherever you want. And the only requirements is that they be well behaved and not jerks in public. They don't have to have any kind of special training. All domesticated animals may qualify as an emotional support animal. Cats, dogs, mice, rabbits, birds, hedgehogs, rats, mini pigs, ferrets, the list goes on and on. So And they can be any age. It can be a puppy. It can be a kitten. It doesn't have to be a full grown dog. So this squirrel could very well have qualified to be an emotional support animal. I think she had it in some type of carrier and like it wasn't going to run around and cause a bunch of trouble. But listen, a Delta spokesperson said that they've had issues with these emotional support animals on flights, including dogs having panic attacks, needing to get oxygen administered (laughs) to them, flight attendants being bitten by other support animals, ducks just wandering the aisles, blocking the beverage carts. I wonder if she did have a letter saying that it was an emotional support animal. I know a lot of people forge those things because they're pretty easy. It's yes. basically a doctor's note is what it's and you look can, like. There's even websites where you can go online, fill out a yes or no questionnaire and print out your certificate. Sort of like becoming ordained to do your friend's wedding. <laughs> That's just hilarious. It's a tough thing because riding in a plane is a common space. You're in tight quarters. You've got to share that space and be respectful of other people. And you never know what's going to happen with an animal. It could poop and pee all over the place. Um Like I said, I think the squirrel was probably not going to be that big of a problem. But, you know, once the flight attendants are asking you to get off the plane, it's already going to be a problem. Man, I just love that. You know, I'm not typically a nervous flyer at all. I do get a little wary when, you know, the turbulence starts hitting. But other than that, I'm pretty solid when it comes to flying. How about you, Miranda? Depends on the people that I see at the gate. If they're <laughs> right? all just kind of chilling and looking at their phones, I'll be good. Yeah. But if there are a bunch of rowdy people or they're drunk already, I'll pop a Xanax. It'll cause that anxiety mm-hmm. for you, depending on how everybody else is. So here's the important question, Miranda. If you did get anxious, what would your emotional support animal be? And it can't be a cat or a dog. It's got to be a little some, something a little more exotic. Okay, because my go-to is I'm going to bring my dog I've had well, for 10 I, of years. Of I would have brought my own dog as well. But you can't do that. This is, is something... In the line of uh, peacocks and hamsters. Can I have an emotional support turtle? There you go. That's a that's a good one. They're quiet. They're yeah. just kind of cute and calm. That's true. That's my animal. Turtle. I think my emotional support animal would be a sloth <laughs> because they move slow. Again, they're quiet. They don't get into too much action. But I'll take that sloth. I think that'd be cute and something fun. to. It's a good conversation starter. You know, it, thank you, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. All right, that's it for us this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.